Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Deal Property Podcast. Today I'm joined by a, um, uh, I would say, a bit of an expert in the and the data and the science behind these predictions and 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 being able to follow market trends. He's been around the bush, I think, uh, with a few different businesses in and out of Australia in in, in that um, I guess in that business. So Kent Lardner, mate, welcome to the Real Deal. Thank you, Jack. Mate, I think to, to give the listeners a bit of an idea on where you've come from and how you've come to this expert status, um, can you run us through, I guess, yeah, a, a bit about your journey? I know you've been with Pricefinder, I've been with the Core Logic, which are some of the biggest names in that segment of the real estate market. Yeah, I started out in mortgage insurance uh, right. in the 90s. Um, so it was when things really started to get hot in property um, and there was a lot of change in the, in the mortgage game. So right. um, volumes went up. What happened there was we, we had to double down and understand property market data uh, much better than what we did with the, uh, the underwriting team that I had, um, specifically because there was a lot of um, consolidation and centralization happening. So suddenly um, we went from having offices that were processing valuations state by state who understood different regional markets and the nuances and risks of those markets to a lot of underwriters that were centralized, right. looking after the whole of the country. So as a result of that, I needed to double down on property data and understand how to, to validate evaluation. So instead of people having the intimate understanding of that suburb or of that region, they were coming maybe from looking at something in Newcastle but being in an office in Sydney. Yeah, and they still had the network uh, ability, but yeah. things were busy. So we couldn't spend a lot of time communicating office to office unless it was a really high risk job. Right. So that was probably the foundation for me uh, starting to double down on, on understanding valuation data, automated valuation models and market yeah. risk. Um, and then from there, um, after uh, several years uh, in that space, I moved into a company called Pricefinder. Um, the founders uh, approached me and said we needed to do something a little bit different and um, um, we built out the, the Pricefinder estimate tool and at that time it was quite innovative um, and built that up and that business sold off and then from there I went over to CoreLogic, heading up their uh, banking platforms and analytics team. Um, that morphed into an opportunity in China um, where I was, spent, I was up and down to China for a couple of years trying to set up the equivalent of the, the RP data type business up with a, a, a partner company uh, up in China. Which is a very interesting story we've covered before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was fascinating and it, you're, you're in awe of the, the scale and the size of China. So you just, you get off the plane, you look at a city and you're just blown away, especially if you're from Newcastle, you yeah. know, it's, it's just the scale of the place is, is mind blowing. Um, so that was the that was the, the the core logic piece. In between there, I had a bit of time at, with a real estate portal um, called Real Estate View, um, and I really hadn't had any exposure to that um, SEO. I didn't even know what SEO was, search engine optimization. And so we had a website that uh, needed some traffic and needed to be relaunched, and we did that over a, about an eighteen month, two year period, and uh, right. built that right up. So it became quite a challenger brand to the to the two dominant portals. Um, that, was a, that was a fascinating experience, a good you know, learning curve for me, uh, understanding how to uh, uh, build a, a website and its traffic. So what that, where that leaves me is today uh, doing my own thing with Suburb Trends um, and very much focused on uh, helping from the buyer side. So not looking so much at the seller side or the real estate uh, agent side, but very much focused on the buyer's agent side, the valuer side, the investor side and and looking to answer questions for that for that cohort yeah which i think is very very unique to have someone with your experience and i guess 
market knowledge of that segment of the marketplace. You know, if you go to someone like a core logic, you go to someone like a price funder, you're talking to one of the, the workers, you know, one of the people who are not at the top and probably don't have the experience of the whole business. Where when you, I guess you can come to you directly through suburb trends, you are suburb trends and, and you're the one doing all of the, the research and, you know, spitting out the reports and, and I guess you can make things a lot more intimate, a lot more customised. I think that one of the most important things in what I do is understanding the nuances of the data. And a lot of the data has problems. Uh, a lot of data is dirty, a lot of data is skewed. I think understanding where, where the data comes from, how it's sourced, what are its limits, limitations, yeah. and then morphing that into reports and products. Uh, I think having an ability to, to look at the data from cradle to grave is really critical. And to your point, as these companies get larger and larger, and I've been there, um, you're forced to have dedicated resources that just deal with the client relationship or dedicated resources that just deal with the data and effectively you end up with silos and, and, and a lot of communication, a lot of understanding and appreciation of the, the limitations and yeah. the constraints of data. Uh, I think a lot of those problems start to manifest and, and ultimately it's the end user that, that suffers which if it's the, not managed well. Exactly, which is just your general buyer who, who buys one property every 10 years, looks at some data and then goes, oh, well, this must be great because this, this person said so and they have no idea where that data come from. And like you said, they can be skewed and, and I guess um, have a vested interest in pushing you one way. Yeah, and not, not all are like that. Um, there's some brilliant companies out there. Sure. I don't want to promote, uh, but you know, I've seen many operations that companies that have just done phenomenally well with property data understand it end to end and you know, have, a, have a, a very lightweight team of client representation or sales and management layer with the, the bulk of their team in the engine room. Yeah. They're the companies I admire the most. For sure. I think just, just touching on like, you know, skewed data and, and what to believe and what not to believe, the biggest one everyone looks at is clearance rates. You know, everyone looks at how well the market's going yeah. by a clearance rate. And one thing that I notice myself is every Sunday, generally realestate.com and domain and a few others send you the clearance rate yeah. and they're all different. Every single clearance rate is different. And then when you dig, you know, dig deeper into it, it's because they've all had different reported results. They've all had unreported and then they all come out with a different clearance rate. But which one of those to believe yeah. you don't know. So I guess touching on that. I guess, what is the go with clearance rate? How do you know what the real, I guess, true optimal clearance rate is to understand what the market's really doing and how do you, you know, pick well, out the... I'm the, not a fan of auction clearance, clearance rates. Rate. I yep. just, I'm not a fan of it for a number of reasons. If it can be gamed, I don't want to play with it at all. And yep. it can be gamed. Um, I think that the, you, what you, you stumbled upon there is, you know, that there are a number of people that are providing it. There is massive variation, which tells me how unreliable it is. Even if there wasn't that variation, I'd still challenge it because it's a, a different sub-market. And, and you know, the auction market was obviously, and is rather strong in, in Victoria, in and around Melbourne. Um, it's, it, it's reasonably strong in, in Sydney, yeah. but it dilutes across the rest of the country. And, and the rest of the country is, is a, lo- a large part of, of the 500 markets that I like to analyze. Yeah. So um, I think it's a little bit too skewed and it's a little bit too vulnerable for me to play with. Okay, so would you say if, if you were someone out there looking at, I guess, a clearance rate to give you a bit of a high level indication, you'd be looking at a clearance rate, not for the whole of Sydney or not for the whole of Melbourne, you'd be looking at clearance rates for maybe specific pockets. Specific pockets where that is the go-to yeah. method of marketing, um, that's fine. But don't ever look at data in a single view. 
um, look at it multi-dimensionally. Um, I think that's the key. Uh, a great example of that, and I just published this yesterday, was looking at a days on market right. and, and uh, comparing that to inventory. And if you correlate the two or put those two on a, an X, Y axis, you'll see little dots that sit away from the trend line. So yes, they're, they're highly correlated, but you, I saw these two little dots way up here, you know, little lone, lone ranges. And what they were were two areas where there were a lot of house and land packages, Brinjelli in Sydney, Rouse Hill was another one. And I think what that does, that tells you the value of looking at data multi through that multi-dimensional lens. Yeah. Um, and I think too many people judge the market with one single metric like an auction clearance rate. So it's, what you're saying is if, if you're a buyer, let's just say looking in Rouse Hill and you looked at a Sydney clearance rate of 70%, at a high level, you'd look at the market and go, Sydney's pumping across, that means Rouse Hill must be doing just as well. But then when you go more micro, you see that there is a lot of house and land packages there and the days on market are blowing out. And or the days on market are actually artificially low because right. it's a new house and land. So that's why it stood out on the chart. Inventory levels very, very high, but the days on market stayed amongst the, the average of uh, the pack. A little bit higher, but not, not alarmingly high. Right. And I think that highlights the point, is that you, you need to look at more than one data point um, to, to truly appreciate it and don't make decisions on something as simple as an auction clearance rate. Way too risky. Right. A lot of people do, uh, as an investor, they like to find the next hotspot. They like to find the next place that they can get the next 10, 15, 20% growth. Yes. And look, whether I agree with that or not, it's, I guess it's not my place to say. But let's just say you were an investor and you were looking for the next hotspot and you wanted to get into the marketplace and ride that, you know, I guess, growth that may or may not come. Yes. What are some key data points that you would look at to identify an area like that? I like to go back to the uh, white papers that have been published independently. There's been a, a couple out of the universities, one out of Macquarie University, etc. And, and the long-term drivers uh, are the things I like to go to. And then once you determine what those long-term drivers are, look at the local market factors or variables. And some of those long-term drivers are obviously population growth, uh, unemployment, um, two main one, GDP, big Big economic variables. Just before we run any further, unemployment and um, GDP, and the other one was population growth. Population growth, and, and and they vary. I mean, that's that's these models were done at a city level, yep. so you you'll find some regions where population growth does not stand as a strong and significant. Variable. What would be a number? I guess you could gauge off which would be above average. You know, if you're looking at say an area, going, why would I choose this area over this area because population is X and because this is X. So what what would yeah um, be? or well, change for each area? The one I'm the one I'm focused on at the moment is unemployment. Right. So that's a great variable. Now, if you look at that at the moment, it, it, there's some mixed figures there. I've heard anything from seven and a half to eight percent is current, but then. The reality is, you know, you read other reports that say actually the real figure is double that. Right. So I think the driver of the market in the next year or two is unemployment. Okay. Um, population growth, obviously, we know what's happening there. Things are settling down. We, we, we're not bringing in a lot of people from overseas like we were. And that um, uh, migration data, um, that strong growth of population growth, uh, people coming in from overseas, was a big driver in Melbourne and has right. been for, for 10 years or more. So that's um, uh, whittled away um, and may not come back until 
who knows, post-COVID crazy world that we're in. So as a result, really what I'm looking at is what's left that's a variable. Um, Interest rates used to be a variable. Well, they're pretty much flat now. (laughs) Um, So, so many of these models that were built, you know, robust models designed and published as white papers out of the universities um, had variables in them. And those variables are gone. They're just not up and down anymore. So the biggie that's left for me now is I'm looking very heavily at unemployment. Okay. And unemployment is a high level to go, okay, if unemployment is low, then we can look more micro into the data. That's what I would do, yeah. So you double down on a region that's solid. Yeah. And you know, a couple of classic examples at the moment. Um, Cairns has a number of markets, if you subdivide the market up into, I like these things called SA3s, statistical area level three. A lot of the markets up around the Cairns area uh, have high levels of inventory. Um, if you look at somewhere like uh, Newcastle, where we are, uh, one of its biggest employers is um, the, the medical, um, certainly in my suburb, number medical. one employer is the, that medical. Yep. So you've got different industries um, that are being impacted significantly or less significantly um, as a result of COVID. So I think for me, the number one focus would be jobs, without a doubt. Okay. Okay. Um, what about stock levels, like I said, inventory? Like, you know, yeah. one of the biggest drivers, I think, at the moment in especially Sydney and Newcastle, is that there is no stock. Low stock. So um, pre-COVID, the housing market, a lot of the housing markets were very, very low inventory levels, which positioned them quite well for this shock of COVID. Um, What happened was actually listings levels went down even further. So yes, demand has subsided in many markets, but to match that or match it equally, if not, um, go one better, um, supply levels have dropped significantly. So as a result, that metric of inventory has gone down very to a very, very low level, um, right. you know, levels that we haven't seen in, in, in decades. And you've got a lot of markets in and around Sydney. Um, you know, one that stands tall is the, you know, the, the Northern Beaches areas and around that Manly area very, very low inventory levels, you know. And they're still getting incredible prices. You know, I'm trying to buy property there for my clients yeah. at the moment and, and trying to find the property in those areas and not just any property. You know, home buyers want particular properties on particular streets with particular aspects. Yeah. It's almost impossible. You, you need to door knock. Exactly, which is what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess, would, would there be a, I guess, a, a ratio you would use to say, this has got good buy demand in an area compared to inventory levels? Like, do you have a statistic you track in terms of X amount of buyers per property or? Yeah, I've seen some of those. uh, I know that REA publishes uh, views. Um, I don't know how reliable that is. I haven't tested it. My first reaction is if somebody's bored at home clicking on a dream house in the in the hills behind Noosa, I'm not too sure that's anything more than just me sitting at home dreaming. Yeah. Um, So the hard data that I obviously like to use um, and, it, and, and this does vary uh, region to region, but yeah. the, the big variables are, you know, is the unemployment rate good and is it trending in the right direction? Yeah. Um, we have been using, obviously, population growth. We look at some of those fundamentals, but equally I like to look at inventory as my lead indicator. And, and inventory for me as a lead indicator um, tells me pretty much where prices will likely go in the next six to 12 months. So if we've got a, a current low inventory level, you know, five months or lower, that's upward pressure on price. Um, and then if it's trending lower and lower and lower. So when you say an inventory level of five months or lower, I just elaborate on that to explain. Yeah. So if there's a hundred listings in an area, 
uh, and an average of 10 sales per month, 100 divided by 10 is 10 months of stock. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the, the simplistic view. So the theory behind this is if no property listed ever again in that area, how long would it take to clear the shelves for, for no property to be left yeah, for sale? Okay, right. It would take 10 months in that scenario to clear out and have no properties left to sell. Right. Okay. So it's widely used in the US. Um, I, I've seen one actual web, one of the websites in New Zealand using it. But Australia's just been we our go-to has been days on market. Yeah. Very strong correlation, at least eighty-four percent correlation. But you get those crazy scenarios we mentioned earlier on, where um, inventory levels can be quite high, but days on market not so high, and that is often the case where you struggle to match the address of the listing to the subsequent sold property. So there's a breakdown in the data matching the, the listing through to the sale. And, and when I say days on market, the correct term is probably to call it cumulative, cumulative days on market. Right. Where you say, when did I first see it listed? and when did it sell, regardless of what happens in between. Right, okay. And then do you then segment that and do, say, houses, apartments, townhouses? And <laughs> yeah, and correct. Um, because obviously, I know, just let's just talk eastern suburbs in Sydney, houses at the moment are selling very, houses and semis, gone. days on market and they're gone. Gone, and that's that's common in, in a lot of areas at apartments, the moment. Apartments though. Apartments, different ball game. Exactly. You know, and you've got all sorts of crazy stuff happening in the apartment space as a result of construction issues, cladding issues yeah so you've got those problems on top of um oversupply and there's a contagion contagion going on there um probably a poor choice of words in the current environment but effectively if you've got a, 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 an inner city hub like south south bank or docklands or melbourne city or even sydney city um certain pockets where there's a lot of supply um that is having a ripple effect you know, we talk about the ripple effect usually in a positive sense, but it has a, there's a ripple effect in the negative sense as well. Yeah, and I think another thing impacting that is obviously rents are generally dropping in these areas because we have no international students, you know, we have no travellers. And in places like the eastern suburbs, like your Bondi's and your Coogees, that's where they live, right? And they yeah. Out. It's harder to find a tenant, which means you have to be competitive on your rent. And then investors go, well... If I'm not getting the, the premium rent that I need, I don't need the property, so I'll sell the property. If, yeah, and we're watching to see what happens. I mean, yeah. we were waiting for the September, September cliff, but that can has been kicked down the road, obviously. Yeah. Um, so we don't know yet, but what I like to watch with the rental space specifically um, is how many properties there are listed for 20, 21 days or longer. So it's a bit like your expired listing. Yeah. After three weeks, I'd consider the rental listing expired. That's the stuff that feeds into your vacancy rate, but by... Looking at it specifically as how many properties are listed for three weeks or more, that's a great count, a real world representation of what's happening in that suburb to say, wow, there's a lot of landlords doing it tough. Yeah. Um, property's not rented after three weeks or longer. Um, that's a big dent in their cash flow. They're probably only planned for two weeks without cash flow. Where would you, um, where would you find that sort of data? Oh, I, I, that's on my site. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so you, you can go down to an individual suburb and say how many of these rentals have been on the market for 21 days or longer that, and what is that as a percentage of all the rental stock? And that's what we track. Um, and Jack, what you said earlier on, splitting the market in, into houses and units. With the rental space, it's a little bit of a challenge because you're trying to, you, you, your numerator is how many properties are listed and you can split that into houses and units. Townhomes are a bit of an, an anomaly. Yeah. Um, uh, generally can be identified as a townhome. But what they've done, the, at the denominator of that 
is what the census tells us, how many properties are rentals in that suburb. And the problem we've got is they cluster together houses, freestanding houses, and then they cluster together uh, townhomes and row homes. So your, your strata townhomes are clustered in with terraces and, and, and row homes. Right. So that, and then you've got apartments and units. Yeah. So rather than muck around with, with trying to split those up and split hairs, I've grouped those together. So I just treat rentals as rentals, total, total rentals, and then group that together with, uh, with the total rentals of all property types from the, from the census data. Yeah. That's my methodology. Uh, and, and, and generally that works quite well as a lead indicator because there is a, a very strong correlation between all rental markets yeah. in a suburb. Yeah, yeah, right. So if, if, if the houses are all, and apartments are renting it differently, yeah, I get what you're saying. It's, they all correlate very they closely. They do a lot yeah. more than, than the exactly. capital value sales markets, yeah. a lot more correlated because okay. someone says, well, should I rent the three bedroom unit for $600 or rent the townhome for $900 when the difference is a little courtyard, I'll go the unit. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Very, very interesting. Um, what I guess, so you said moving in, in, into the future now with, with COVID, the, the big indicator for you is looking at unemployment. Unemployment, yeah, we had to see it because we've got a lot of gov government intervention which screws up your models. And but there's a lot of lag time between when that actually happens before we actually see the data, right? Yeah, and we've also got throwing on top of that, we've got bank holidays, mortgage holidays still going on. Job you know, seat, anything up to, I've heard figures from 500,000 mortgages being deferred to 800,000 and higher. So that could be, who knows? I don't know the exact figure. Could yeah. be a million, million mortgages out there being deferred. So I don't know what's going to happen at the end of that. But yeah. all I know is, you know, things aren't going back to normal anytime quick. We want them to, just yeah. because we want them to doesn't mean it will. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think one more thing I wanted to cover off is how, because you see these suburbs right, sit dormant for years and years and years and years and they do nothing and then all of a sudden someone jumps in there and they get 20% growth for four or five years and then they do nothing again. Yep. So wh why do you think that happens? I have a theory around that a lot of that growth is then manufactured and the market is manipulated by, you know, big buyers agencies and big businesses coming in there and buying a lot of property and then when they feel like the growth stops, they then leave and go into another marketplace. I worry about the measurement of growth. Yeah. Let's pick on medians for a minute. So, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with medians um, and you're dealing with small sample sizes, uh, it doesn't take too much to say, wow, that suburb's booming because the median has jumped. Um, but the same people who would rely on that metric um, would pretty much switch away and focus on another area when it goes the other way. And a great example is not far from here, Fern Bay. For many years, it was, or for about a year, it was the number one growth spot in, in Australia. It was because we went from very, very old houses and then suddenly we had a new release of houses and they're all new stock. So suddenly the growth rates were through the roof. So usually, that's very good. So usually the average 80s home that was there for you know, the last 30 years would sell for 500. Then all of a sudden, a house and land package development come about. They were seven fifty. Yeah. So they were selling. There's obviously a, probably a fifty percent discrepancy in those two prices, and that gives you a jump in median house price. But and really, there isn't any real. Was growth. there a growth in value? No. And uh, the Americans uh, sought to resolve this a long time ago with something called the Case-Shiller Repeat Sale Index. So you track a property, the same property through time. Yeah. You know, did it sell here, then it did it sell there, and what was the change in price 
uh, over that period of time and that's what forms your, your index. The problem with that is we don't have enough turnover in the houses for that to be a really robust metric. Equally, the other downfall of that is there's a lot of um, gentrification renovations that are happening in that time period of 11 plus years in the houses. Yeah. So they're the, 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 the limitations. But generally, if you don't double down on a suburb which is highly exposed to that compositional bias of a few you know, um, new houses selling and bumping up the price or a few renovated or the other way. Yeah. If you focus on a region, which is why I like SA3s, generally you start to get to a representative sample. So you pick on the statistical area level three, you get enough sales in there, and if it's approximately bell-shaped curve, it's, it's a reasonable metric. Yeah. And the thing is too, that same problem that challenges for the median is the same thing that would challenge you for an automated valuation model or some other indexation method that tries to revalue the same property through time. It's the same challenge because you're still going to have properties entering the AVM that are new and in right. inflating it. So it's the same challenge. Or like you said, properties that have been renovated that haven't taken into <coughs> consideration the $200,000 that person spent on the renovation. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, and that's where the, the human ultimately um, is, is a, a valuable input into yeah. these things where you know, quite often if you don't have a reliable distribution or enough sales, um, falling back to getting a valuer to do a retrospective valuation on a handful of valuations or a handful of sales yeah. is a pretty good methodology. Yeah, and that's what I, a lot of you know, the, the properties we buy, we like to get independent valuations done because they, they don't go through the whole marketplace. They go and hand-pick properties that are actually comparable Correct. to the subject yeah. property. And it, and it makes working out the value a lot easier than going, you know, the, 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 the suburbs had 7% for the last six years. That sits at roughly in this range. Yeah, and they don't have a bias. They're biased. They don't have a bias towards anything other than looking to give you the right price. Exactly. Mate, this has been a cracking session. Very, very informative. And I think a, a lot of people are going to now rethink the way they look at data and rethink the, uh, the way they value property. So I, uh, I thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Jack.